Hello, my name is Deborah Thomas, Editor-in-Chief of American Anthropologist, and this is Anthropological Airwaves. Welcome to our newest episode of Anthropological Airwaves. I'm Arjun Shankar, and I'm really excited to introduce this episode, which was produced by Diego Arispe Bazan. In this episode, you'll hear from Adrian Lowe of the University of Waterloo and Jonathan Rosa of Stanford University, who both focus their discussions at the intersection of racialization processes and language ideologies as they relate to Asian and Latinx populations, respectively. Both Lowe and Rosa ask us to interrogate the politics of standardized English and the way that racial ideologies force non-white others to constantly navigate a never-ending process of legitimating themselves through English language learning, which they ultimately can never quite achieve within the particular political economy of race we face today. It's a really important, fascinating discussion, and I hope you all enjoy. Hello, this is Christina Nielsen. I'm a PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania. I study accent and language in India's call center industry. I'm joined today with Dr. Adrian Lowe from the University of Waterloo in Ontario. Today we are talking about an anthropological approach to the English language. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Lowe. Oh, thanks for having me. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about how different varieties of English might uh, embody different images of person and why it's important to distinguish between different types of English in Korea and also what the sort of social role of English is. So as, as many people have written about, uh, English in Korea really serves as, as a gatekeeper uh, to uh, university education, to advancement at the workplace, to getting a good job. As a South Korean, when you want to get a job with a, an, a multinational corporation like Samsung or LG, uh, often part of that interview will be in English, even if your job has absolutely nothing to do with international marketing or international communication, you'll nevertheless be required to demonstrate your skills in English. Uh, for job advancement even, so once you get that job, uh, you will keep taking English tests and, and so English is very important, it's become this marker. Uh, that demonstrates that you are committed to your job, that you care about studying, that you want to advance, that you are the kind of modern global subject that Korea uh, is, is seeking. Or is, you know. So in that sense, uh, I think Koreans recognize that English is very valuable linguistic capital to get, but it's also hard to get in terms of um, where you can get access to this variety that they think of as you know, real English, or world English, whatever they might call it. So there's a belief that in order to get this valuable form of capital, you can't stay in Korea, you have to leave. So it's not merely the elite or the wealthy who leave, it's now increasingly a middle class and even sometimes working class phenomenon where Koreans feel that they must leave the country. Everything from a short term summer study course in the Philippines to maybe two years in New Zealand. And I think part of that is, is tied to the economic situation. The fact that jobs are extremely difficult to get, uh, even for university graduates. So parents really feel that they have to give their children every possible leg up. And one of those legs up is, is certainly English. So in terms of the varieties of English, 
I suppose Koreans, like, like many other people, believe that there are different kinds of English. So there is really good English, right? The kind of English that might be spoken in London or New York or maybe in Toronto. And that English, it is believed, is not available in Korea or perhaps is available in the personas of quote-unquote native speakers. <laughs> so teachers who travel from these important global cities to Korea to teach. But for example, they believe that the forms of English spoken by American GIs in Korea are not valuable. So America has a huge military presence in South Korea. And Koreans definitely believe that the kind of English that is spoken by GIs is not the kind of English you want to learn. So what makes that English less valuable? Are there like uh, the features of that English that they view as different than the features of the English language teachers? Is it the sort of racial or social positioning of the GIs, you know, from their like backgrounds in the U.S.? Is it just their association with the military? Like that's that's fascinating. Um, so I guess they understand American GIs as drunk and low class and violent. So the the social characteristics that are identified with the figure of the GI in Korea are then projected upon the place in Seoul, a neighborhood called Itaewon, which is where the extremely large American uh, military base is located. And then, as you point out, also upon the, the variety of English that those GIs are supposedly speak. Today, we're in Itaewon, the most famous foreigner district in Korea, to see if we can ask some random foreigners on their opinions on Korea. What was one of your first impressions when you came here to Korea? What surprised me the most was how late everybody stays out. Like, it's like a non-stop party all night long. Have you ever felt discriminated against or uncomfortable in public spaces because you're a foreigner? Yeah, maybe. I, I've been, like, turned away from clubs and stuff that don't allow foreign people in there. Why did I turn you down in a club? I think, like, some of the dance clubs or some of the nightclubs, they're, like, they've, they've probably had, my guess is, and what I've heard is, like, maybe some people have caused trouble there, like, Military guys who may look similar to me, white guys have gotten in there and gotten in fights or they've had caused disruptions. So I think they just want to avoid that and they're like, all right, just get them out of here, you know. So the place in Seoul, Itaewon, it's seen as a sort of repository of failed modernity or, or failed globalization. And it's where these sort of low-class Koreans who try to hang around the base and these sort of figures like, or the small shop owner. But these are these are not the sort of how shall I say, elite, high-class, transnationally cosmopolitan kind of figures. Oftentimes whiteness is really seen as the key to good English. So there's, there's been work looking at how, how different kinds of speakers of English get paid different amounts in private English institutions. So the idea is that sometimes if you are white, so let's say from Norway, right, you will get paid more if, than if you are from a racialized minority, but from a country in which English is the dominant language. So for example, you'll get paid more if you're white in some cases than if you are from, if you are African American or Korean American. And then Korean Americans are, are, are interesting in, in the way that they participate in this market. So on the one hand, particularly in the realm of K-pop, they're, they're seen as having access to this kind of cool form of African American inflected English, which is, you know, like cool. But on the other hand, we know for a fact that they and also African-American instructors get paid less or are seen as less desirable as instructors in the private English market. 
than, than you realize. So the, there are these, again, stories in the media about uh, poor South Koreans who can't afford to go and study abroad. And they think, oh, I'll just learn English here. So they decide that they're going to take jobs in Itaewon because Itaewon is a place where one can meet lots of foreigners and they work as waitresses, supposedly, this story, in, uh, you know, and, and, and they serve American men. <laughs> but the story goes on, the article uh, in one of the leading conservative newspapers. But what they don't realize is that the only people you meet in Itaewon are drunken foreigners and that the only kind of English you will learn there is, quote, restricted English. So the idea is that which is very interesting because on the one, I mean, from some perspectives, that would be the best form of language learning, right? It would be naturalistic. It wouldn't be you sitting with a grammar book. It would be you, it'd be you learning English from actually talking to real people who speak English, right? People who speak English as a, as a quote, native language. But in these cautionary tales in the media, it's understood um, that this very naive, kind of unsuspecting, poor, you know, South Korean girl thinks she's getting real English, but what she's really getting is this very discredited form of, quote, Itaewon English or restricted English, which is associated with these, with sex workers, with <laughs> racialized GIs, with drunken people, and that's not the kind of English you want to learn. Yeah, it also seems like within K-pop, the one who does the sort of African-American rapping hip-hop is always the bad boy, too. Yeah. That he's not, he's not the, he's not the leader of the group, usually he's always the sort of bad boy kind of maybe had a rough background kind of <laughs> I think I'm revealing how much I like K-pop to you right now um, but is also appealing particularly yeah. because he's that rough guy who's lived on the edge and a little bit dangerous yes yeah, <laughs> yeah. okay so I think I want to change directions a little bit now mm -hmm. and think about English in the United States in the context of this group of like so-called Asian Americans mm -hmm. so maybe we can start out with talking about first what is this term Asian American, and to what extent is it useful? To what extent is that itself implicated like mm. as a racialization process? So the English spoken by Asian Americans is complicated, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, partly because of course the, the cultural formation that we think of as Asian American includes all kinds of people with different linguistic backgrounds and different migration histories in this huge area of the world. And, you know, Koreans go to the U.S. and they suddenly realize, you know, Americans think we have something in common with Japanese, which to a Korean absolutely makes no sense whatsoever. So I guess part of the issue with the term Asian American is the imaginings of language that are projected upon this group and how those are in dialogue with the way that other groups are racialized in the United States. So the, the idea that these kind of groups have always been in dialogue with one another, right? That colonialization is partly about slavery, but it's also a lot about the transition to, quote, free labor linked to Asia because the people who were brought in as, quote, free labor were migrants from, from China and India, this kind of figure of the coolie. So the idea that we, you know, we got rid of that bad thing that was slavery and we replaced it with this better thing, free labor. Uh, but of course that free labor was not very free, right? It was coerced, it was racialized. And I guess we need to think about that today, you know, in, in the contemporary United States that Asian Americans do play this, what's sometimes been called this triangular role in relation to blackness and whiteness. Uh, so this whole idea of the model minority is partly that, well, you know, Asians, they immigrate to the U.S. and like, 
they do just fine. It's all great. You know, they're all going to Harvard, you know, after one generation. And, and that is implicitly, or not even so implicitly, a rebuke against African-Americans. So why, why, what's wrong with you? You know, like, why can't you do that? And, and the idea is, oh, that's because the Asians, they have that good culture, that Confucian, you know, stuff, and you must then have bad culture. And I think we can see that same process in regard to language. So if, if African-Americans are understood to speak what some people call a vernacular form of English, you know, African-American English, which is seen as maybe not suitable for many contexts, like job interviews or, you know, news reports or things like that. And Asian Americans are often understood as not having an ethnolect, right? Not having a distinctive variety of English um, that they speak as Americans. That is, again, in a tool <laughs> in the service of holding up Asian Americans. So therefore, it must be the choice <laughs> of African-Americans to speak this, quote, self-defeating, you know, variety of English. And if they choose to speak that way, and th that will limit their economic advancement, well, I guess that's their choice. But they, they could choose a different path, the path that Asian-Americans have taken. So I think that, that what we recognize as linguistic difference and what we don't recognize as linguistic difference, it's important to, to think about who's doing the recognizing and, and that the focus is always on that movement right, for Asian-Americans, that they, they just assimilate. It's just, like, so easy for them. Yeah, and just to, like, reiterate and be clear, like, there's a huge variation in how people from different racial yeah. backgrounds, right. like, there's not only varieties among African-American, there's regional right. ways of speaking. So we're, in part, we're talking about stereotypy. Yes, we're talking about what varieties get recognized as varieties and who is doing the recognizing or the non-recognizing, right? Mm -hmm. But another part of the story might be this question of, are Asian Americans, are they also implicated in a racialization process that's not just sort of them versus black people, but sort of in their own right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's very important to point out that there, there are different forms of racialization. So people have looked at how certain kinds of Asian Americans get racialized as model minorities and then certain kinds get racialized as non-model minorities, right? So they're positioned, again, within this black-white axis, and, and this relates to class, you know? And again, they're often also understood as speaking a non-standard form of English, usually, so those, those things are linked. Um, I was thinking about your work on the community in California. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Where you were looking at how people talk about language as a form uh -huh. of racializing people and how that kind of problematizes the model minority idea. Um, a lot of people call it the model minority myth, but the model, the idea of the model minority is that Asians, they, they move to the U.S. and then a generation later they're all assimilated and it's great and white people love them. And I guess a lot of on the ground research with actual <laughs> real living Asian Americans has shown that this is not the case. Right? Uh, this is the idea that the foreignness persists, that they are forever foreigners, and yes, certainly, at least in the community that I studied in California, there was this issue of, of white flight, that when the town was seen as, quote, becoming too Asian, realtors started steering people away and saying, well, you might feel more, feel more comfortable if you move to this other, you know, adjacent community. Or, you know, there's a lot of competition in the schools here. You know, your child might, might do better at, at the neighboring school district. You know, people like to talk about language as a proxy for race. So they wouldn't say necessarily, I don't want to live around all these Asians. But, but they would talk about how 
you know, I, I just don't understand the signs anymore. They're all in Chinese everywhere. All these people speak, they're not speaking English. I don't even know where I live anymore. Uh, their secrecy, you know, what are they talking about when they use that language? And again, this goes back to these longstanding descriptions of, of speaking an Asian language, speaking Chinese, but then just Asianness in general with um, you know, secrecy and deception and, and all of those kinds of things. So I think that those, those ideas are, still persist. It's not as though they've gone away now that we've achieved this new you know, post-racial <laughs> moment or anything. Huh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Hola amigos. Presentamos este programa. Pero con sentimiento de la calle. In authentic Latin beat. For all of my people, Negroes and Latinos. And even the gringos. Pero si quieren saber un poco más de qué se trata, quédense unos minutos con nosotros. I'm here with Jonathan Rosa. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. I'm happy to be here. So uh, I just wanted to dive right into things. There's this assumption that most folks have that there's such a thing as standard language and that everybody speaks a standard language or they should try to speak the standard language, the quote-unquote correct language, the proper form. And so when I challenge my students and I basically show them why that doesn't work because of all the different ways in which people speak and the different contexts in which people speak, their minds are blown. And you work on this issue a lot in terms of the realm of education. But so I wanted you to talk a little bit about folks who might not be familiar with this notion. When people talk about a standard language, what are they actually talking about? Yeah, I think we can approach it in multiple ways. So um, I tend to use the, the phrasing standardized English rather than standard English. So when you use it as a noun phrase, it sounds like an objective thing. And when you use it as a verb phrase, it sort of suggests that there's a process that's happening that's positioning some forms as standard and others as non-standard. I'm interested in that process more so than I am in the object because the object shifts. So, you know, I was just joking with someone uh, a little while ago about the category of academic language, which I really see as a gloss of standard English or standard language. Right. And, uh, you know, I was describing an example of a uh, high school where I worked where one of the teachers was talking about the principal of the school, and the principal is a Puerto Rican woman. And a, a white teacher said about the Puerto Rican principal, um, she speaks English like one of our ninth graders, and from what I understand, her Spanish isn't that good either. So I said to this teacher, this, that's really interesting. So what aspects of her language stick out to you as incorrect or deficient? And she said, well, she wrote this letter of recommendation for someone, and she used the phrase making application. So she said, I'm writing to recommend so-and-so who is making application for such and such position. And she said, who would ever use the phrase making application? That's so dumb and wrong. So I said, you know, I didn't really know what to make of that. So I just Googled the phrase and found it in The Guardian, found it in The New York Times. So it's an arcane usage but that based on the principal's positionality was perceived as, and we could talk about race, gender, a whole range of dynamics, but was perceived as incorrect or deficient. Now this is a, a woman, the principal, who holds a doctorate in education, who holds uh, an institutionally 
superior position and is still called into question based on her linguistic legitimacy. So for me, the stakes of this are much higher when we're talking about young people, particularly in marginalized or very vulnerable situations. So if not even someone who's obtained a doctorate is perceived as speaking or producing standardized English, then what does that category mean exactly? What are we doing with it? And that process is one that is not only racialized, but also has all kinds of implications for forms of identification, self-identification, community building. So I've encountered educators that will say, well, we need to teach them the proper language because otherwise they won't be successful, right? And so it's hard to sometimes to get people to understand that that doesn't mean that you have to devalue and dismiss the linguistic forms that they have incorporated from the social space that they come from. Yeah, I ask people, you know, what's What's the nature of the problem you're trying to solve? And so if we're talking about, say, educational underachievement, you know, high rates of educational underachievement for particular populations, we talk about race, class, et cetera. You know, if we know that that's a structural phenomenon, then the intervention can't be to teach people to use particular linguistic patterns. The, the structure of the economy is not a linguistic problem. So simply by learning particular scripts, you don't necessarily you know, that doesn't mean that there will be affordable housing or a living wage or a wage at all or access to institutional resources. So I worry that we're selling people a false story. You know, and I, everyone who I work closely with knows that I've been dwelling with this Toni Morrison quote for so long now where she says the, the function, the very serious function of racism is distraction and there will always be one more thing. So you prove you're good enough in one way and then the bar will shift. So in some of my talks I show how from some perspectives the problem is that certain populations lack language altogether. So you didn't read books to your kid, you didn't speak to them enough when they were young. And then for other populations, we say, oh, you don't have the English language. So it's not that you lack language, you lack the right language. So you're an English language learner. You're designated as an English language learner. You need to, to learn English. And then for other populations who then learn English, we say, oh, you don't know the right variety of English. You need to learn standard English or academic English, this kind of thing. And it, it makes it feel as though there will always be one more thing. So then you master this one and you're still perceived as deficient. And then the principal of the high school I was just mentioning obtains a doctorate, is the principal of the school, and is still deficient. So what kind of game are we trying to play or win in this situation? And is it worthwhile to be playing on those terms? Or could we be doing something else altogether. Kids who don't have books in their homes before going to school, who haven't experienced being read to in their homes, who haven't been introduced to literacy early, have already fallen into a critical gap. Language experts even have a name for it, the 30 million word gap. There's not just one challenge to face when we talk about achievement gaps. Even if we just talk about racial achievement gaps, we have students of color in high income suburban districts, that are lagging their white classmates. We have inner city school districts that are high poverty, um, have a difficult time attracting teachers. So the work that needs to happen is to figure out how in each of these contexts we can make the changes that are necessary to produce the excellence to which we aspire. If we're truly gonna restore our country's promise of opportunity for all, then we need to guarantee every American child a great education from the earliest age. This week, I'm challenging even more Americans to join this effort. Let's find new ways to deliver a world-class education to our children 
bridge the word gap and put more young people on a path to success. So there's, this makes me think about two separate issues. So I'll start with the first. So indeed, there's this, there's this kind of teleology of success that's supposed to be achieved by jumping all of these different hurdles, including incorporating into your linguistic repertoire. What do we do in that case? So I guess that's why so I brought in you know, my experience with chatting with um, other teachers and, 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 and explaining this fact to them. But I think you're going a step further, right? So then what is, what is the next step in terms of how we address these issues in, in the realm of education, which is something that you, that you work on and are an expert? Right. It's not an educational problem when we're talking about a, a historical problem, a, a problem at the level of an entire society. And so at that point, when we're just reducing it to something that could happen within classrooms, we're selling teachers a false story, we're selling administrators a false story, we're selling students and families a false story, which is that if you would subscribe to these practices, then you know you would enter into this trajectory or that ends with success or achievement or something like that. But Again, what, what kind of vision of change is that? And so when I think about what else we could be doing, well, how are schools oriented to the communities that they're serving? Who, has a, who plays what role in structuring that? When we look at our schools, it's a profoundly colonial enterprise, the, the project of US schooling, as it has been from its inception. So the idea that underachievement is some accident or a, an achievement gap, gap talking, if you want to see me turn completely red, just talk about gaps. But, uh, you know, the idea that, that if we would just perfect schools. You know, that children get quote unquote live behind. Yeah. As a sort of a, it's a, an a sad accident. It's right, an yeah. Oops. As opposed to saying, no, you can't have a society built as this society was built without having institutions that reproduce really particular sorts of social relations. You know, the, the entire project is structured in such a way that it subordinates particular populations and positions them as deficient. The whole point of the institution is to orient toward, toward deficiency, not to do anything collectively. You know, it's not part of any collective vision. That's the, the critique. The alternative is, well, how could schools be structured otherwise? I've worked in schools where you have almost all students of color in the school and almost all white administrators and teachers. And there's no excuse for it. When we think about the political histories out of which bilingual education emerged, right? that was part of the post-civil rights moment where people were articulating radical political projects and bilingual education was about community control of schools. And so it wasn't just a, a, wow. a project of teaching language, it was who is the teacher? Where are they from? What's the variety? Who gets to determine all of those questions? What's the curriculum look like? What's the goal? What's the relationship with families? That was what bilingual education was historically in the mid 20th century as it was sort of being created and, and emerging. At this point, bilingual education looks like standardized Spanish and standardized English. And the idea is that the, in, in terms of we're talking about uh, Latinx populations, what it ends up doing is positioning is doubly marginalizing particular racialized students and positioning them as lacking the legitimate variety of their so-called home language and the le legitimate variety of the so-called right. school language. The alternative project would have to ask, you would have to sort of rethink the, the modes of power and authority and who gets to shape what the institution looks like. So this allows us, to, I think, now to talk a little more explicitly about racializing processes that happen through language. And we've talked about it a little bit already, but 
I was interested in the, the concept of racial linguistics, which you mobilized with Nelson Flores in your recent article together. But that's been around a little bit. There's like the edited volume. But maybe you could talk about it a little bit. Yeah, so I've been thinking through this language and race relationship for some time now. And so even from the beginning of grad school, my my master's thesis in 2006 was the name of my what my book will be that's coming out next year, which is looking like a language, sounding like a race. So I've been trying to figure out how race and language are overdetermined. And part of mm -hmm. this comes from my observations on the ground. Part of it comes from lived experience of sort of people expecting you to know a particular language or thinking that certain languages primordially live within you. And I think for Latinx populations in the United States, there's the sense that the Spanish language is what defines you as who you are. And yet I found on the ground in so many situations that varieties of Spanish were the clearest ways to distinguish between different, you know, to create intra-Latinx difference, sort of the idea that this category this ethno-racial category corresponds to this language form, corresponds to this nation state. Um, so my intellectual project for some time now has been trying to figure out how these categories are co-naturalized. The, the ways that certain populations just were continually positioned as deficient no matter what they did linguistically, no matter how so-called good their English was. They were still seen as long-term English language learners. So many students never test out of designation as English language learners. Um, what's so interesting is that the reclassification test, often students who are designated, students who identify as monolingual English users can't pass that test because the test is focused on content just as much as language. So, you know, for some people they need to learn standard English, for some people they need to learn um, just English, for some people they need to learn this, that, the other, and, and it looks like these are separate problems that people have, that heritage learners, that standard English learners, that, that all these categories, that, all these categories yeah. that are associated with distinctive ethno-racial groups, modes of migration, they're being marginalized in really similar ways. And so I was really trying to rethink the Herderian, what in linguistic uh, anthropology we call the Herderian ideology of one language, one nation, one people. This ra ethno-racial category corresponds to this language form, corresponds to this nation state. And I think the one people part of that hasn't been fully, or I think the racialized nature of the one people part of that hasn't been fully interrogated. Um, so my intellectual project for some time now has been trying to figure out how these categories are co-naturalized. And sometimes it matters. Sometimes it matters for a community to have these boundaries. And that's, that's also perfectly fine. But it's important to understand how these boundaries operate, what they do, when it's important to challenge them because they're furthering any number of both historical but also contemporary forms of exclusion, of dispossession, et cetera. That, you're, that point is so crucial, and, and I, I'm really glad that you made it. So my goal is not to say to people, don't claim a language or something like that, because in various settings that might make a lot of sense, depending on the, the particular political situation and the strategies that um, correspond to that situation or are meaningful to people based on that context. So um, it's, it's not a straightforward, easy situation where we can say, oh, just get rid of all of the categories. No, let's figure out how they came into being and how they function, and let's make sense of all of that. And categories are how we make sense of the world. Absolutely. I mean, language exists because of contrast. Absolutely. And so, and so again, I, I tell my own students, you know, having categories isn't the problem, but how we construe difference and how we talk about difference, that's when you get into problems when people start essentializing difference. And it's similar to the conversations that I've had in the past around 
the I word and illegality or the notion mm -hmm. of illegal immigrants. It's not that I want a new label for the sake of having a new label, it's that the debate around why we have these labels in the first place. And uh, when I was doing interviews, interviews with a lot of journalists, they would say, if we don't call people illegal, what should we call them? And I would say, wrong question. <laughs> the question is, why is it that commodities have more migration rights than human beings? Why isn't migration a fundamental human right? Why do we need a label for this in the first place? And they say, well, that's prevailing immigration law. And I say, okay, well then maybe we need to interrogate prevailing immigration law and to figure out the history out of which those laws emerged. Thank you all so much for listening. And if you're interested in collaborating with Anthropological Airwaves or sharing your work, please do not hesitate to reach out. You can find our information on the American Anthropologist website. In just a few short weeks, we'll have our next episode, and we look forward to you tuning back in then. Have a great rest of your week. <laughs>